if you'd open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's going to be on the screen as well, but if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open them. And John 17 is that wonderful passage of Jesus' prayer to the Father. Uh, we're going to see in verse 1 of John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. In other words, the time that's come is the time for Jesus now to finish His mission. He will now offer Himself up on a cross. He will take upon the sins of the world and He will be sin for mankind that we might receive the righteousness of God. And so that time is drawing near. And then He will conquer sin and death through the conquering of it through a resurrection. Uh, this is a, a great time for us to look at this text as Easter, as Easter is approaching just to see what was Jesus' prayer to the Father on behalf of His disciples and for all those who would follow after the disciples. What are the final words of Jesus that we have recorded in prayer to the Father for the disciples and for the church following the disciples? So it's going to be, a, uh, I think, an encouraging time. This text is not like, um, uh, it's not like good medicine. You know, it's um, my son Cooper, he loves bubblegum Motrin. I mean, he could drink. He could drink. The, you know what I'm saying? You guys ever tasted bubblegum Motrin? It's good stuff. Um, it smells good. It's like those old uh, erasers, bubblegum erasers. I remember when I was a kid, man, all the girls had them. I would just, I just sniff that thing all day, man. Just that's, mo- that's bubblegum Motrin. And uh, man, it tastes good, and it, it, you know, it helps with the fever. But you don't give bubblegum Motrin when you've got a bronchial infection necessary. That doesn't get rid of the infection. You've got to go get that nasty stuff, you know, and, it's, and it doesn't taste real good, and sometimes you've got to kill it with some kind of a flavoring if it's possible. Uh, sometimes Cooper makes me dip my finger in it and taste it because if he has to taste it, I've got to taste it. So I make sure to make, that they put a lot of flavoring sometimes because I know that I've got to taste the stuff too. John 17, this prayer... It's not going to be bubblegum Motrin. Okay? It's not going to be... Mm-mm-mm. Okay? This prayer is a serious prayer. This is Jesus leaving His mission, and He's going to essentially say four things that He wants from the disciples and for the followers of, of the disciples, for the church. And these four things are meant to be challenges for us, to really do a serious personal inventory as an individual and as a body of Christ. Uh, in fact, these four things I was thinking as I was studying this week, um, if I could only accomplish four things with my son Cooper, just four things, and it was these four, I would be absolutely satisfied as a parent that, that it was mission accomplished. And I'll tell you the four right up front. Uh, the four things that Jesus is going to pray for is, number one, uh, that there would be a spirit of unity among, the, among believers. That if Cooper, if you think about it, if your child learned to have a spirit of unity with people, wouldn't that be a good thing? That they knew how to get along with people, to be unified with people? That would be a good thing. Uh, secondly, he's going to pray that the disciples and that the church is holy. If I could accomplish teaching Cooper about holiness, not just about moral holiness, but about the idea of him being separate from this worldly system that's running, this engine that's running the world, that if I could get Cooper to see that distinction and to recognize that he is set apart from that world, that'd be good. Uh, thirdly, Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to pray that they would know the truth. And he's going to pray that truth is something that is absolutely essential for these, for these 
early followers of his. Um, if I could get Cooper to love truth, to be a, a, to be a young man as he gets older, to be an older man who really seeks to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, and mind, for him to come home in eighth grade someday and to tell me he just can't get enough of Algebra 2, that would just blow me away, that he is a seeker of truth. See, that'd be good if he was, had a spirit of unity, if he was holy, he knew he was set apart, if he was a truth seeker. And fourthly, if I knew that he was mission-minded, he was missionally minded, that he knew that his life had a very distinct purpose from God. That, um, like the, the sons of Issachar, we read, they were men who understood the times. Amen? They understood the times, and they understood what their role was in their day. If I could get those four things done, hey, I don't care what Cooper does for a living, as long as those four things are done. He can be a doctor. He could be in the ministry. He could, he could do any kind of job he wants. I don't care what he does. Um, I don't care how big his house is. I don't care what kind of car he's got. I don't care how big his bank account is. I don't care how attractive his wife is. I don't care, I don't care about any of that stuff. If he did these four things, I would be satisfied as a parent. See? And these four things, imagine the impact of these four qualities and what they would have on a church community. If a church community actually assimilated these four qualities, qualities of Jesus' prayer into their lives. You know, one of the statistics that I just continue to be absolutely amazed at is when guys like George Barna and stuff kind of talk about how many evangelical Christians there are in America, sometimes it's hard for me to believe it. You know, when you hear these numbers of 35, 40, 45 million born-again evangelical believers, where are they? Why is our culture the way that it is? If there's that many who have embraced the light and who know that the key of life is to reflect the light, why isn't there more light? Why do we feel, if you feel like me, ever, do you ever feel like you just feel these walls of kind of this post-Christian secular culture just closing in sometimes? I mean, you see what legislatures are passing and you look at the front news of the paper and you see the evil and the crime and all the stuff that goes on and you just go, where's the light? Well, the light begins with each one of us. And it begins in community. And it begins in neighborhoods. And then in cities. And then in states. And then in nations. You see? And so this prayer is a good prayer. And we need to do a real serious inventory on how am I doing here on these four areas that Jesus prays to the Father about. Look with me here beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer because He's about finish his mission, offer his life. But they, the disciples, are still in the world. And I am coming to you. In other words, he has left it. He's leaving his mission. He has passed on the torch. He's left the great commission to go out into all the nations proclaiming the good news. And he says they're being left in the world. And then he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, which by the way, that's a phrase that means that Jesus has all of the divine authority that the Father has given Him. It's the same name that God gives Christ. It's a great Christological verse here. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. There it is. That's His first thing that He asked the Father. That they may be one as we are one. 
Now look how important this is to Jesus. Look down in verse 20. He goes on here. Look how many more times he says this. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning just the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? You're looking at them. It's the church. So this is for us. That all of them, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Here's the purpose. You ready? That the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the purpose of unity. That the world might look at this body of community of believers and they might say something like, look how much they love. Look how unified they are. I remember I had a little microcosm um, example of this. I had a buddy of mine that wasn't a believer. I'd known him for a long time. And about seven or eight of my buddies, we were all getting together one night um, for a uh, poker night. Um, playing poker. Don't write me any letters. Okay, We were doing chips, not money. Poker night. And I had a couple reservations. One, I, w- I wasn't necessarily sure I wanted my buddy to come because I knew my buddy. And I didn't want him necessarily to kind of, you know, make my other buddies uncomfortable. But I got over that. Then my other concern was, well, what if my buddies say some things that make him really uncomfortable and make Christians look bad? Not that out. That's stupid. So I went ahead and I, and I, I brought him in. And we ended up, gosh, 8 o'clock till after midnight. We hung out, man, and we all, we laughed and we played and had a great time and drank soda pop and chips, all right? And at the end of the night, I remember I was walking my buddy out to his car, and I was like, hey, man, thanks for coming out. I hope you had a good time. Those are my good buddies. And he goes, man, that was, that was a great time. He said, it's kind of amazing that there's something about you guys that's different. I said, what do you mean? He goes, man, you guys, you guys don't talk about what guys talk about. That's what he said, literally. You guys don't talk about what guys talk about. He said, you guys... No one cussed. No one talked about other things. I said, man, I said, you know what? I said, you know where we stand. We're Christians, man. We love each other. We've got the same mindset. And he recognized that there was a distinction in the way that we acted as a group. There was some unity about us that was attractive to him. That that would be true on a corporate level. But unfortunately, it's not. Because there is so much disunity, so much splitting. So much disharmony that goes along, uh, goes around in all the churches and all of our lives. And part of that struggle and part of that disunity that's there is meant to deepen and to grow us and to strengthen us. But unfortunately, we allow the bitterness and the resentment and the split to be the what we represent to the world. Uh, that's why I believe it's absolutely crucial that in all of our relationships, as Paul says, that we seek peace as much as possible. We seek peace as much as possible. We are peacemakers. We are ones, as much as we're able, on our end of the table, to offer peace with all men. See? You can't control what others do, but you can control what you do, and that's what we do. We offer peace. A, a relative sense of harmony. This is not about uniformity. Okay? This isn't that there's not going to be differences and, and, uh, and differences of opinion. Look who Jesus called. Jesus calls Judas, who's a member of the Zealot Party, the Zealot Party was a group that hated Rome. And then he calls Matthew. What did Matthew do? 
Matthew was a tax collector who worked for who? He worked for Rome. And Jesus very strategically calls each of these disciples with very different personalities, very different temperaments. He will call a Barnabas who's an encourager, who loves to introduce people to each other. He loves easily. Then he calls a Peter who's kind of this impetuous, kind of abrasive guy. He calls them and all of these guys come together and now Jesus teaches them about unity and love. See? And now He wants to pass them on as He leaves and He prays that they would be unified, that they would be one with each other as He is one with the Father, that the world might believe the message that was sent. Isn't that good? It's unity. We need to seek unity. Look what else he says here. Go back to uh, verse 12. He says in 12, While I was with them, he says, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. That one, of course, is Judas. He was lost because he was doomed to destruction according to the Scriptures. One would betray him. But Jesus says, All these others stayed. They remained because Christ protected them. Christ kept them. You remember what Satan said to Jesus when he asked about Peter? Jesus goes to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has come to me and requested that I let him sift you like wheat. You know, Peter said, what would you say? You did say no, right? Jesus protects him. He can look at Satan and go, "Uh uh-uh, not yet. Not yet. I am His protector. I'm the one that will guard and protect. And I, none will be snatched out of my hand. He is our protector. He is our hidden resources. See, and the reason He prays protection is because the battle that we're in is a spiritual battle. Paul says it like this. For our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against powers and principalities and dominions. He says, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to resist the devil and the schemes of the devil in the days of evil. Um, Our weapons are not carnal, but they are divinely powerful. How does Paul see life? He sees life as a spiritual war, that there are spiritual elements that go on that are attacking the hearts and the minds of men and women. See, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's about something else that's going on, and he prays protection. And we have hidden resources. We've got Christ who protects us. I remember when I was in 8th grade at Congress Junior High School, in off-season one day, we're playing basketball, and um, Billy Mitchell, tough kid, he got mad at me. I, I, guess, I guess I was blocking him a little too hard. And Billy takes this basketball, and uh, Billy takes it, and he just throws it at me. Boom! And it hurt. And all of a sudden, I've got this choice. Get beat up or lose my pride. And I just thought, well, we'll see. I have no idea what I'm going to do. So I looked at Billy and I went, what's up, man? And he gets squared up with me. And I mean, I knew right then I started hearing, dun, dun, dun. I started hearing revelry right there. I was done. I was about to get whipped by Billy Mitchell. Because he was tough, man. This guy fought all the time. And I was a sweet little guy. But I was squared up with him. And I was about to go down. And I remember uh, at any moment something was about to happen. And all of a sudden I look at Billy 
And Billy turns his eyes for just a second, just to the side of me, and looks back over at me. And Billy goes, Get you, man! And he walks off. And I turn back, and behind me was my, bu- my, my brother's best friend, who was in the older grade, who was the toughest, grade in ninth, toughest kid in ninth grade. His name was David Wilton. And David Wilton was doing this. Man, I had hidden resources right there. Did I not? I was so thankful that I had David Wilton behind me because I was about to get my clock cleaned by old Billy there. And that's what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I'm the one who protects you. I'm the resource that you rely on. You find your strength in me. I've protected them. He goes on. 13, he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. That's what Jesus longs for every one of us to have. The full measure of His joy within us. Does that mean that we are without struggle? Does that mean that there is no conflict? There is no hardship? There is no suffering and pain? I hope not. I hope not. Uh, You want a great chapter to read? Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read Paul's resume of sufferings where he boasts of his sufferings. Remember? He says, I have been whipped with the 39 lashes five times. Five times. One time is bad enough. Five times he gets whipped 39 times. Uh, Shipwrecked three times. That's, That's a bad day right there. Shipwrecked three times. Stoned imprisoned. Um, His life was threatened everywhere he went. He says he was a night and a day in the deep. Meaning he was treading water in the middle of, of the sea all night. That's a bad day. And yet Paul at the end of that can say, yet praise be to our Father. How can Paul say that? Yet praise be to our Father. My back is torn up. My face is beaten up. I'm exhausted. I'm spent. Life has not looked like what I thought it was going to look like. Yet I can say praise be to the Father. It's because He was able to walk with the joy that Christ offered Him. See? Isn't that good? The joy of Christ that's in His life. He says in 14, I've given them Your Word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Here's your second point. The first one was he prays for their unity. The second one is he prays for their holiness. Not just moral holiness. He prays for their separateness. That there is the recognition that I am not a part of the system. See, I am not um, a person who is involved in the system and look like the system. And he's going to flesh it out again in a minute. But what is this word that he prays? Look what he says. He says, that they're not of the world even as I'm not of. I'm sorry, he says in uh, 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. What is the word that he has given them that has caused the world to hate them? Well, it's the, it was the radical teaching that Jesus had that was so contrary to the religions of his day that Jesus said, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what? It's what comes forth from the heart. You see? Jesus says, it is your heart that makes you unclean. And then He says, everybody's guilty. He says, uh, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you that if you've lusted in your heart, 
You've already done it. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you've gotten angry with your brother from your heart, you've already murdered. See, in Jesus, all of a sudden, He just smooths out the playing field. And He takes Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, and He just wipes the slate clean, and He goes, "Uh uh-uh. Our hearts are darkened. Our hearts condemn us. See? And then He makes the claims. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Radical words that Jesus gave them. And these followers took these words and they embraced them and they began proclaiming these words of truth that Jesus gave them. And how did the world treat them? The world hated them. Because everything about the world is about self-achievement and human goodness and human accomplishment. It's not about the work of God that we need desperately. Um, Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. You believe that? Hey, I believe that driving here. Trust me. That 22 miles sometimes can be a tough drive for me getting here. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But thankfully, I do not operate out of my flesh. That if I yield to His Spirit, that I can now do great things for His cause. So, he moves on here now and he says in 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you protect them from the evil one. You see what he's saying? That we're a people who are called to be separate, but we're called to be in the world. We're called to be a part of this world. He goes on here. He says, They are not of this world, of the world, even as I am not of it. Here's 17. Here's your next one. Sanctify them by the truth. For your word is truth. In other words, he says that these he's praying that the disciples would be people who longed for the truth of God, that they become truth seekers. This is an area, and I wish I had longer to talk about this. This is an area that I think is sorely lacking in the church. This idea of being truth seekers. That's one reason, to be honest with you, why I think Rock Point Church is such a wonderful church. Uh, we're a people who love to fellowship. We're about to have a rodeo next week. Isn't that good? Some of you are going to wear cowboy hats. And we're going to eat barbecue. And we're going to have some spicy barbecue. And the kids are going to run. And that's, that's good. That's going to be good fun right there. But you know what? We're a people also who believe in truth at Rock Point. That's why they would actually hire somebody called a teaching pastor. You know, when people ask me what I do sometimes, and I kind of, I do several different things, and I tell them I'm a teaching pastor, a lot of times I'll get, oh, wow, you're a senior pastor? No, no, I'm a teaching pastor. Oh, what's that? A uh, pastor who teaches. I, I teach. I educate. I equip. That's all you do? Well, that's what my job description is. I'm, I'm here to, as Ephesians says, I'm here to equip the saints. And so what we do is we teach a men's study and then we teach Sunday school lessons and we do surveys of the Bible and we do apologetics and we do evangelism training and all of these things. And we do the point on Monday nights where we come together and we learn and we learn to grow and we shore up ourselves in the areas that we're weak and we learn to become truth-minded. Amen? That's what I love about Rock Point. We try to be a balanced church. And he says, sanctify them in the truth, Lord in the truth, that they might be a people who honor and value the truth. We're not just the Kiwanis Club here, guys. We're not the Optimist Club. 
We don't come around and have, you know, just a time of gathering and shake hands and hug and go eat some barbecue, go eat some Tex-Mex afterwards, and boy, sure good to see old Billy. It's not what we are. We're not the, we're not the Kiwanis Club. We're the body of Christ. And the core that binds us all together is what we did a few moments ago, and that is when we all stand and we say, I believe in God the Father, Maker of heaven and earth, all things that are seen and unseen. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. And we as a body in unity, we say those things to show corporate harmony and that we value the truth. That's why we do that. We don't do that just because some of you grew up in churches where you said the creed and so we want to try to appease you. We do it because we believe that the creed that binds us together matters. And the truth matters. I do a lot of traveling and speaking. One of the things that I try to say to young people when I speak to high school groups and college students is I try to inspire them to go beyond an undergraduate degree to go further, to get the advanced degrees, get into society. See? Love the truth. Use your mind for the glory of God. He concludes here, and look what he says, 18 and 19. He says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. There it is. He has sent us into the world. That's our mission. He has sent us to do a work on His behalf. This isn't, we're not a people who are supposed to be isolated from the world. That was the Pharisees. That was the Essene community. Remember the Essene community? They thought the Pharisees were liberals. You know what they did? They ended up leaving Jerusalem and went to the Qumran caves and lived on their own. We're not hermits. We're not monastics. We're a people who have been sent into the world. We don't isolate ourselves from the world. We're not you know, God bless them. They believe the truth. But we're not the fundamentalists of the early 20th century that divorced ourselves from society and from culture. Hey, Christian Yellow Pages, that's all right. That's fine. Christian music industry, that's all right. Christian publishers, hey, that's fine. But listen, we need to make sure that whether it's homeschooling, private schooling, Christian Yellow Pages, bumper stickers and excuses. But what we're not doing is we are not in an isolation mentality that I'm doing everything I can to divorce myself from the world because we have been sent into the world. Now the problem with being sent into the world is if you don't isolate, a lot of times you will amalgamate or you'll blend in with the world. You will become just like the world. And unfortunately, that's probably the error of the church today. We look very little, uh, there's very little distinction between the church and the world today. We look just like them, unfortunately. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not sending you into the world to look like the world. I'm sending you into the world to permeate the world. So that you might carry the light into the world and that your life would be a fork in the road of all those around you. That they might see something in your life of unity, of holiness, of truth. And they might at some time look at you and they might say, there is something different right there. There's something different with Matt, with Michael, with Tina, with Stephanie. There's something different about that person. What is it about their life? 
You see? And we are sent to permeate the world and make change. By the way, that's what the early church did. They didn't isolate themselves from the Roman Empire and the Jews. They didn't amalgamate themselves and become just like them. They simply permeated society so that they began to affect everything around them. And that's the goal of our instruction, is to permeate our society. And he finishes up here and he says, For them I sanctify myself. Now, this word sanctify here, a lot of times it means to be set apart from evil. Right? To be made pure. That's not the word here. Jesus is already pure. He's whole. So he's not talking about that form of sanctify. What he's saying is, he has sanctified himself. He has set himself for the mission of God. He has set himself apart from the world for the mission of God. And so he says that they too may be truly sanctified. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to set ourselves apart for a mission. Not merely to set ourselves apart from evil. Y'all see that distinction? That's the prayer of Christ. How do we affect change? How do we renew our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, our nation? We become a people who so permeate society that our holiness and our unity and our truth and our mission radically revolutionize those around us. And we've got a great historical test case. It's happened. We did it. And today we have to go back. We've got to go back and we've got to pick up the pieces and we've got to fulfill the prayer of our Lord. You know, my son Cooper, he, he thinks I'm amazing. And he's right. He, uh, I teach tennis at a club in Dallas and I had him on the court not too long ago. And we've been doing lots of forehands and backhands and so we're working on the serve. Those of you who play tennis, both of you out there. Um, the serve is one of the more difficult shots to hit because it's a different kind of emotion. So I'm teaching him, and, and you know Cooper's trying to get it. He's throwing the ball all over the place, and he's swinging sideways, and he's just trying to get it. He's seven and a half. He's trying to get it, but he'll be great. Trust me. And so he says, Daddy, hit me. you should hit a serve. I said, you want me to hit a serve? He goes, yeah. I said, how hard do you want me to hit it? He goes, a million miles an hour. I said, how about a hundred? He goes, Okay. All right. So I take a ball and I get up there and I just bang, pop this serve. And he's like, Whoa, Daddy, you're amazing. I know. I know I am, Cooper. I know. You know, we go to the gym and work out. And he'll go up there and do those little machine weights. And he'll put the pin on like the 5 or the 10. And, you know, dink, dink, dink. And he'll pull on that thing. And, uh, you know, inevitably, I know it's coming. He'll put that pin at the very, you know, bottom. You know, and he'll go. Daddy, come here. What, Cooper? Come here, Daddy, lift this. Nah, you don't want me to. Yeah, Daddy, lift it. All right, Cooper. And I'll get up there, and by God's grace, I'll, without a hernia, I'll grab that thing, and, you know, it's for my son. So I'll go ahead and I'll you know, pull that thing down, and he'll watch those weights go up. Daddy, you're amazing. Yeah, I know. I know I'm amazing. You know, he's, he's learning to read, right? I love it, man. He's learning to read. And he loves to hear me read. I mean, at my house, he can't go, he can't go a couple of feet without seeing books on the coffee table, books on the kitchen table, books in my study, books in the car. When he gets in the car, he's got to move my books in the back seat. Books everywhere. And he'll say, "Daddy, read this." And so he always calls them big books and kid books. So I said, "Daddy, read a big book." So 
So I'll pull out some book, some, you know, whatever, book on theology or whatever, and I'll just start reading. You know, there's words. He doesn't know what they mean. I'll just start reading. Daddy, I sure hope I can read like you someday. You're amazing. Yeah. But what I said on the tennis court is, whenever he was out there and he said, Daddy, he did say you're amazing, by the way, that time. Oh, when we were on the tennis court and I hit that serve and he goes, Daddy, you're amazing. I stopped for a second and I got down on one knee and I looked at him and I said, Cooper, I said, Daddy's not amazing. I said, Daddy's been doing this for 30 years. And I said, Daddy has done this a little bit every day. And I said, Daddy tries to be diligent and I've played all of my life, Cooper. And I said, you know all those books that Daddy reads? I said, do you think Daddy started reading last year? No. I said, that's right. Daddy's been reading for a long time. And Daddy reads. I said, no, I said, does Daddy read every day or every other day? Every day, every day, Cooper. Daddy reads. And I said, when Daddy goes to the gym, does Daddy go to the gym all the time? Yeah. And I said, so Daddy isn't amazing, Cooper. Daddy just works. I just do things a little bit every day. See, and the spiritual life is no different. Unity, holiness, truth-seeking, mission-minded, to affect change in culture and society, to renew our communities around us. That's not something you just decide to do today. That's something now that we've got to work at it. I know that's not a really great Protestant word. Grace is opposed to earning, not work. And it's something that we do a little bit every day, and we work. How are we doing, church? How are we doing? Are we working are we putting the required effort to affect change and renewal in our lives and in the lives of those around us? Monday night, the point. Great place to come and get some good tools to study with us, to learn, to learn to affect change in those around us. We've got Bible studies offered here at Rock Point, community groups. We need to do this. It takes a little bit every day to affect change. Isn't that a great prayer? the prayer of the centuries that Jesus has given us. So we should do a personal inventory and just ask the Lord if we truly are fulfilling the prayer of Jesus for all of us.